And well, so today, we want to talk some about that greatest book in the world. And I uh, want to talk about the reliability of the scriptures. I want to talk about this to the adults and the big people here today. And so before we look at the trustworthiness, the accuracy, and the truthfulness of God's word, let's first look at what does the Bible say about itself. And so you kind of know, okay, here, here's what it claims, because it makes some big claims that other books don't make about itself, themselves. So here, here's what the Bible says about itself. It says in Hebrews 4.12, as we just talked about, it is alive and powerful. It says it's given by the inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. Inspired meaning breathe, like breath, respiration is often called the, the breath of God in 2 Timothy 3.16. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says it is the very words of God. Luke 16 says it's all we need to know to know God. Uh, Proverbs 6.23 and 2 Peter 1.19 says it is a perfect guide for life. Psalm 12 says it's pure. Psalm 119 says the same thing. It, uh, the Bible says it's true. It says in Proverbs that it's flawless. In Psalm 19 it says it's perfect. In Isaiah 55 it says it's effective. In Psalm 19 it says it's precious. In Romans 16.26 it says it's for everyone. Not just People in Western civilization, but people in Eastern civilization, in the Northern Hemisphere, in the Southern Hemisphere, it is for everyone. In James 1.22, it says it is to be obeyed. Some big claims that the Bible makes about itself. Claims that other books don't make. So, what exactly is the Bible? What is it? The Bible is also called Scripture, which means, which means writing. And, it, and Bible comes from the word the Greek word, which means book. The Holy Bible means it's a set-apart book. The Bible definitely is a unique work. There is nothing like it in the world. It is actually a collection of about 66 books put together, written over a period of more than a thousand years. It was written on three different continents, uh, Europe, Asia, and Africa. And it was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and a little bit of Aramaic. It was written during times of war, peace, sorrow, and hope. The writers of God chose to the writers God chose to use to write these books came from all walks of life. There were kings, there were peasants, there were philosophers, there were fishermen, there were poets, statesmen, scholars, there were military leaders. The books of the Bible cover history, sermons, letters, songs, and even love letters. There are geographical surveys, architectural specifications, travel diaries, population statistics, I can't even say that word, family trees, inventories, and numerous legal documents. It covers hundreds of controversial subjects, yet with amazing unity, it brings things together despite the writers being separated by time, by distance, and diverse life experience. It is the best-selling book of all times. They don't even put it on the New York best-sellers uh, list anymore because it's always number one. It always has been and always will be. And now it's available in 3,000 languages, and in this world there's only a little over 6,000 languages. So, the Bible is an amazing book. The Bible is divided in two different sections, uh, two major sections, the Old Testament or Old Covenant, which is made up of 39 books, and then there's the New Testament or the New Covenant, which is made up of 27 books. Old Testament or, or the Covenant has to do with God's redemptive work, a promise to a nation, and that nation was Israel. The New Testament has to do with God's continuation of that redeeming work, redeeming man, only it's a promise to individuals. He moves from a promise to a nation, and through that nation, a promise to individuals. Old Testament, New Testament. 
Now, the Old Testament was originally written on papyrus, a paper made from reeds, while the New Testament was mainly written on parchments, which were just prepared animal skins. As you read the Bible today and you look through it, you'll see that there's all these numbers. And the numbers are, the first number is chapter, then there's a colon, and there's verses. Now, these weren't originally written, the numbers weren't originally written in there when the original books were written, but a lecturer in, uh, at a University of Paris uh, in about 1228 A.D. entered in chapters and helped divide it so that basically people could find addresses in the Bible to find what they were looking for. And then later in 1551 A.D., uh, another uh, was, uh, what was added was the verses underneath the chapters. So those things weren't originally there. But how in the world did we get the Bible that we have today? How do we get it? I want to share with you what people have written, I mean, huge volumes and extensive works on this. And I want to share with you in a very simplified way, this is the simplified Shannon McCready way of explaining this, okay? So just a simple five-step sequence of how we got the Bible. One, there's revelation. Two, transmission. Three, translation. Four, interpretation. Five, application. Revelation is the biggest step. It's the miraculous event where God reveals himself and his truth to someone and inspires them through the power of the Holy Spirit to write down what he has to say perfectly in the original copy. This is called autographa. Second is transmission. It occurs when the autographa was carefully copied by trained scribes so that other copies could be made available for people to read. These trained men desired precision so much that they kept tabs on every letter, syllable, word, and paragraph. They had it counted. This is the Jewish scribes with, with mostly the Old Testament. They counted every single syllable, every letter, and so they would have a list. And so, I mean, they didn't look for uh, uh, spelling errors. They would just count the letters. And if it was off by one count, that page was out. It was gone. I mean, that's pretty amazing stuff. I mean, whoever counted the, the letters and syllables of Plato or Aristotle. Though these uh, handwritten copies do have uh, the occasional minor error. And when I say minor error, I mean spelling or punctuation. They were accepted as accurate and authoritative by God's people. Deuteronomy 17, 18, 1 Kings 2, 3, Ezra 7, 14, and Nehemiah 8, 8. They all accepted the written copies as authoritative. Likewise, Jesus taught from copies of books and not the originals and treated them as authoritative also. Matthew 12, uh, 3 through 5, Matthew 21, 16, Luke 4, 16 and 21, and 10, 26. The apostles, who were the senior leaders in the early church, taught from copies of books of the Bible. Acts 17, 2, you can find that. And 18, 8 of Acts, you can read that. And the early church also tested all the teachings against existing scrolls. Acts 17, verse 11. God's people has, have always relied on written manuscripts, and these writings have proven to be accurate and trustworthy. Third thing, translation occurs when people want to read the books of the Bible but are not familiar with the original writings they're written in, Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic. And some of you know the stories. Many of the first men who uh, dared to try to attempt these, they were martyred. They were killed because there were many people who opposed this. But teams later in history, teams of language and theory scholars, uh, language theory scholars carefully undertook and they did it with a painstaking process of translating the original languages into the languages of other people. And the thought of translation really concerns some people. But the fact remains that most of Western literature today has been translated because we don't use the original languages. We don't speak Latin. We don't speak Greek. Yet we trust what we read in school, in the universities, 
in the colleges and in high school. Fourth thing is interpretation. And this occurs when someone reads the Bible in a language that they understand and determines the meaning of the verses that they read. Each text of the Bible has only one true interpretation. And so we need to be careful to read the truth out of the Bible instead of rather reading our beliefs and desires into it. Okay? Five is application. And this is where it's different from interpretation. Application is a result of taking what we learn from the principles in the Bible and make, and make changes in our thoughts and our actions so that our life is aligned with the Bible. Now, there is a seemingly infinite number of applications for a text of the Bible in contrast to interpretation. There's just one interpretation. The author had only one intent when he wrote it. It wasn't multiple interpretations. But there are multiple applications. Like when you read the Bible and the Bible says that we should love all people. There are seemingly endless applications of how you can love people around you. And so you can apply that in different ways. In this sequence of five steps, you can see that step one is the big step that takes faith. And in faith that we know that this revealing from God is the only step guaranteed to be perfect. While the other steps can be accurate, we have to be careful because the opportunity for error increases at each step. So here's the big question that most people ask. Why should I trust the transmitted copies of the Bible? Well, here's what you can do. You can give the same general test that are given to other works of literature and apply it to the Bible. You can do that. And you know what? The copies and the transmitted texts of the Bible stand up. They hold up to the test. Let me tell you about the three tests that are used um, on ancient texts to determine their his historicity. First is the bibliographical test. Uh, and the bibliographical test uh, seeks to determine the quantity and the quality of the documents as well as how far removed they are from the time of the originals. The number of New Testament manuscripts is unparalleled in ancient literature. More than 5,000 Greek manuscripts, 8,000 Latin manuscripts, and another thousand in other languages. Now, if you're writing, if you're, uh, I mean, if you look at this, I, I, was, very, I was very conservative. Really, uh, under the number of copies under the New Testament, it's, it's more than 14,000. Uh, it's, it's more like 24,000 when you add fragments of copies of manuscripts. But here's, here's the thing to look at with this. You see up here, uh, look at Plato. Okay, uh, the date it was written, that he wrote his works around 380 BC. Around 8900 is when we have the earliest copy. How far away is that in time? It's 1,300 years before you have an actual copy of what Plato originally wrote. How many copies are there of his works? Seven. There's only seven. Now, you look at Aristotle, you can look at Caesar, you can look at some of the others, same thing. There's this huge gap between the time when it was written and the time that we actually have a copy of what they wrote. And when you look there at the New Testament, it's amazing because there was only a time span of about 100 years, and some say less than that. But again, I'm being generous. Say, let's just say it was even more. Let's say it was 100 years from the time it was written to the time that we have an actual copy of one. Now, there is, there is a scholar, um, what was his name? Uh, anyway, some smart guy. And anyway, he's got this, he says, he claims he has a, a copy of the text of Matthew that dates 60 AD. But anyway, uh, when you look at this, 
you see that there was only 100 years between when it was written and the actual copies, and there's over 14,000 or up to 24,000 copies that we have today. And I'll tell you what that means in just a second. Now, I'm just looking right here at the New Testament. If you guys are interested in more information about the Old Testament and manuscripts and texts, I really encourage you to search out more about the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are some of the oldest manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament. In fact, um, there's a portion of those manuscripts that are being on display in Charlotte uh, in a museum. Uh, usually, they're uh, in a museum in, in uh, Israel. Um, they were found by a shepherd boy. Uh, who was out and he was throwing rocks. I guess he was bored watching the sheep. And so he started throwing rocks up into holes up in the cliff. And when he threw one, he heard something crash like clay pottery. And he ran up there and there were all these clay pots. And inside the clay pots were these scrolls. And uh, it was actually uh, scrolls uh, from the, uh, the Qumran society. Uh, there were men that lived around the time of John the Baptist. And they were scribes. And they collected uh, and wrote... Uh, wrote down and copied texts. And so uh, I encourage you to check that out because uh, they even have a full, a full copy of the text of Isaiah, the whole thing. And the, the scientists and scholars are saying that it's probably maybe second or third generation, meaning Isaiah wrote it down, another guy copied it, and then another guy copied it. So third generation, possibly, possibly second generation. And I got to see this when I went to Israel. So I got to see this full text of Isaiah. And when they had it and looked at it and compared it to our Bibles today, it was word for word. Word for word. And it was just, it was the coolest thing to be able to see that and look at that and read what it read. And I was going, hey man, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at my Bible and it's the same thing. Nothing new. Nothing new. So, but I wanted to focus more on the New Testament since kind of Dan Brown, what he was talking about, is kind of opposing a little bit the trustworthiness of God's Word. And especially New Testament and the accounts of Jesus Christ. And so what you can see from this chart, there's thousands of copies compared to relatively few copies of other great historical works. What this means is that with more copies, there's more to compare to finding what was accurate transmission and where the mistakes were to ensure accuracy of our copies today. And as you can see, the works from Plato, Aristotle, and Caesar are usually not dis disputed as to their authorship or their accuracy, but are accepted by our universities and secondary schools today. All of the New Testament was written between 50 and 95 A.D. I know I put 130 here because, again, I was being generous. But really, scholars say between 50 and 95 A.D. And the earliest dated copies that we have are dated at 130 A.D. Although there is a non-Christian, okay, I told you that, scholar, 60 A.D. If someone wants to eliminate the trustworthiness of the New Testament, then to be consistent, what they would have to do is also dismiss virtually every work in the Western liter literature including pulling off the works uh, off the shelves, pulling off Homer, Plato, Aristotle, take them out of the schools because they're not trustworthy either. If you're going to do the same test that you use for other works of literature and the same test on the Bible, which has more proof, which has more evidence of its accuracy and, its, and the transmission of it, it's really the New Testament. So it's really quite amazing. There's another test, a second test that's given for uh, checking out the, the historicity of a work of literature. And that's the internal test. And really, it's much like what we do in legal cases in court. Uh, when a witness is giving their, their testimony, uh, if they have some inconsistencies in their testimony, then we say, you know what, that, that witness is thrown out. We can't trust their testimony. It's not deemed trustworthy. So again, looking at the consistency of the Bible, there are books, uh, again, are written about this 
thing, but I can, prevent, I can uh, present just a few simple examples that illustrate an amazing internal unity of the Bible. And, and the main one is just looking at prophecy. And I'll tell you this, that neither Islam nor any other world religion or cult can present any specific prophecies concerning the coming of their prophets. No one foretold the coming of Buddha. No one foretold the coming of Muhammad. But in the Bible, however, we see hundreds of fulfilled prophecies extending hundreds and sometimes more than a thousand years into the future. Consider just a few of the following prophecies that I've thrown up here on the screens and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. There are actually over 300 prophecies of Christ that he fulfilled from the Old Testament. And I've just listed up here about 17 of them. One, he was born of a woman. He was descendant of Abraham. He was born of a virgin. He was born in Bethlehem. He was prophesied the forerunner of John the Baptist. He was rejected by his own people. He was presented as a king riding on a donkey. He was betrayed by a friend. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The blood money was thrown on the temple floor and used to buy a potter's field. He was crucified, crucified with thieves. He was forsaken by God. Lots cast for his clothing, buried in a rich man's tomb, resurrected and exalted, ascended into heaven. Now, when you look at this, you can go, well, you know what? A guy could have maybe self-fulfilled these prophecies. Okay, well, there are some prophecies that you cannot self-fulfill. I mean, you can't say, hey, mom, while you're in the womb, and say, hey, I want to be born in Bethlehem. Let's get over there. Okay, there's some things you can't self-fulfill. So if you were to take just eight of those prophecies that could not be self-fulfilled, just eight, here are the odds of one man fulfilling those eight prophecies. It's like this, and I think I've told you this before, but it's like... Uh, taking a state the size of Texas and filling it up with silver dollars two feet high. So right about knee high, two feet of silver dollars in the state of Texas. And, and uh, you blindfold a guy, and I guess you, you know, ski him out there over the silver dollars out into the middle of Texas. And then, uh, and then once you get there, you pick up one of those coins and you mark it, and you throw it out somewhere in the middle of Texas. Texas is a big state. And, uh, and then you stir thoroughly. Stir up all those coins. And so you're stirring up all the coins in the state of Texas, and you tell that blindfolded guy, pick up one coin out of the, all the coins here in Texas. And the chances are of him picking up that coin, it would be the same as Jesus just fulfilling eight of those prophecies. But Jesus fulfilled more than eight prophecies. He filled nearly 300 prophecies. Can I tell you that, that Jesus and these prophecies, it's amazing is miraculous, and it is also a sign of the consistency of what is told in the Bible and what's shared there. What you can see from this list is that the Bible is a book of history because it continually promises concrete historical events that in time come to pass exactly as promised. These promises show divine inspiration of the Bible and their fulfillment shows that there is a God who rules over history, but it also shows that what was written on different continents at different times in different cultures is internally consistent like a course singing together in harmony. I want to also let you know that archaeology continues to show that, that, there is, that also what is inside, what is internal in the scriptures is, is, is cohesive. It works together. It's in harmony. Because the things that are listed in the Bible, they're finding those cities. They're there. And, and some of them were never to be found I mean, because, because they already existed. They'd never been destroyed. They just kept the cities existed over time. But the cities that disappeared, archaeologists are finding those. Uh, I was, when I was over in Israel, there was a time where people were debating whether Pilate, you know, the guy who uh, said, I washed my hands and said, Jesus, go ahead and be crucified. People doubted whether Pilate really existed. 
And they were using this to say that, man, this, this whole story never happened. Well, Caesarea by the sea is a city right there on the coast in Israel. There's a, a Greek kind of built, or it's Roman, but it's in the Greek style of an amphitheater that's right there. And in the amphitheater, they were uh, doing the excavation, and when they pulled over one of the seats, because sometimes they did this, they'd take old stones and they would use the stones and, and to make new things. They pulled over one of the seats, and on, the, on that seat was inscribed, engraved into the stone, this, this is uh, dedicated to Pilate. And again, it gave the date and all that kind of stuff. And I don't remember those kind of details. But anyway, just to say that archaeology is also showing the consistency of, in, with, as far as this internal test of does the Bible jive together. So a third test is a historical test. And the historical test of Jesus and the events surrounding the time of his life is established by writings outside the Bible. Okay? Writings outside the Bible by historians that were Roman, Greek, and Jewish. Such uh, ancient historians and sources include Flavius Josephus. Uh, I got a copy of that at home. It's really boring. If, if you want to look at it and read it, I'll, I'll loan it to you. Uh, but you could read stuff in there about Jesus uh, where he recorded things. Uh, Mara Barcerap, I can't even say this guy's name, Barcerapion, Cornelius Tacticus, Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, Lucian, and the Jewish Talmud. Simply, when the New Testament mentions such historical facts as rulers, nations, people groups, political events, and the existence of Jesus, non-Christian historical sources confirm the accuracy of the New Testament accounts. So those three tests that we apply to other literature, we can apply to the Bible, and it holds up. What we have today, it seems reliable and trustworthy. All right, the last part of answering questions from the Da Vinci Code and Dan Brown is looking at how the books, how were books included to be a part of the Bible? Uh, how and when was that defined? The movie and the book point to the Roman Emperor Constantine saying that at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, it says that Constantine brought this together and then that he chose, uh, uh, said that there are certain uh, books of the Bible that need to be suppressed. And we're not going to share those because those aren't true. So we're only going to have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, that's, that's what Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code says. Uh, history says a different thing. Let me tell you what history and actual facts say about this. Um, here's the lowdown. The selected books for the Bible were referred to as the canon. And canon is a Greek word meaning reed. Reeds were used as measuring rods, and eventually the word came to mean standard. So the canon is what measured up and was accepted as a standard for Scripture. I shared with you last week how the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. And the apostles meaning the twelve that Jesus selected to be his sent ones. Now, the apostles' teachings were for the majority Jesus' words and an explanation of Jesus' words. The teachings of the apostles were later recorded uh, first as letters to churches and to a few individuals. The writings of the apostles and those close to them assume the status of inspired scripture. I shared with you this last week. This can be seen from within the writings as they spoke of the writings of other apostles. Uh, Colossians 4.16, the apostles' writings were, were to be read in the meetings of the church. They are authoritative alongside the Old Testament. Second Peter 3.16, the apostle Peter referred to Paul's writings as scripture. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.18, the Apostle Paul referred to the Gospel of Luke as Scripture. These writings or books in the New Testament were well written before AD 100, but soon other writings started being read in churches. Uh, most of the other books that were read supported what the Apostles taught, but some false teachings emerged. 
Because of this, the apostles and the early church leaders, those who are mentored by the apostles, uh, in order to protect the church from false teachings, they had to define this is what's real and this is what's false. And so that's what they started doing. And, so what, and this is how they started making what is the standard or what was canonized. After the death of the apostles, the first major confrontation with false teaching was with a popular teacher named Mar Marcion, who decided to reject some of the writings of both the Old Testament and the apostles. And the early church leaders, here's what they said about Marcion. They said he had two ways of nullifying the scriptures. He said he used the knife to excise from the scriptures whatever did not conform to his own opinion. And two, he perverted its meaning by misinterpreting it. And although he was an ancient heretic, uh, he seemed to be doing the same thing that there's a lot of people doing today. They want to cut out parts of the Bible that they don't like, and they want to interpret things the, exactly the way they want to interpret it. And uh, now it was around 150 A.D. when this confrontation occurred, and it was the church leader, Justin Martyr, who affirmed only four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, A.D. 150. So from 200 A.D. on, the four Gospels were clearly established with no rivals. This was 125 years before the Council of Nicaea, which Dan Brown claims is when the Gospels were canonized. And somebody said, uh, we're going to suppress these other Gospels that were written, these other books. So it was 200 A.D. on that the Gospels were established with no rivals. 125 years before the Council of Nicaea. And from 177 A.D. on to the end of the second century, the concept of a full New Testament canon, what we have today in our Bibles, became firmly established along with some other recommended books. But again, this is before, this is before the appearance of the Gnostic Gospels. I told you last week, Gnostic Gospels were heretical writings, uh, a lot of times claimed to be written by uh, followers of Christ, uh, but then were not. Um, but anyway, again, the appearance of the Gnostic Gospels, this uh, confirming happened before their appearance. In fact, the Gnostic Gospels, they never even made it into debate uh, with the church leaders because it was just like, hey, we're not even discussing that. We all know that that's false teaching, false writing. It's not true. So anyway, it never even made it to the debate because the church leaders had already formed the criteria for judging what was true, what was the standard for Scripture. And here it is. Here's what they used. Number one, they said it had to be apostolic. It had to have apostolic authors, meaning the 12 apostles had to be one of the writers or someone closely associated with, with, with them, like Luke. Luke traveled with the Apostle Paul. Uh, or Mark, who was associated with Peter and traveled with him and wrote with him. Uh, two, it had to be orthodox. They taught the well-known faith of the apostles. The third thing, to pass the test of the apostles and the early church leaders, it had to be ancient. They had to be accepted in the churches from the very beginning. And four, they had to be universal. They had to be used broadly in all the churches. So really, the New Testament books didn't become authoritative because some council got together and made a list. The church had already included these books. The church had already said, this is what's real. This is what is divinely inspired. And all the councils did was to clarify and codify what was already the general practice of those Christian communities and what they shared and what they read. We know that somewhere before 303 A.D. that the collection of books that we call the Bible today were recognized, 303 A.D., because at that time the Roman emperor Diocletian declared the destruction of the sacred book of the Christians. Okay, so again, Dan Brown, he says 325 A.D., this is when they started choosing books and saying this is bad, this is right. Happened way before that, guys. And 
It was even at a point, 303 AD, that even an evil Roman emperor said, let's destroy the sacred book of the Christians. So there was something already recognized as the book. So this whole thing about the Roman emperor Constantine selecting the books, it's, it's just a bunch of whole, it's, it's a bunch of hooey, okay? I don't know if you use that word out here. We use that in Kansas, a bunch of hooey. So you know what the main purpose of the Council of Nicaea was? Its main purpose was to reach a consensus on the long-held view that Jesus was divine, that he was God, in contrast to the views of a heretic named Arius. And really, everybody was agreed upon that before they even got together that Jesus was divine. The main thing that they were trying to figure out the council was they were trying to figure out how to express Jesus being God and man at the same time. And, and so they were trying to figure out, how do we say this? You know what, what they did? They came up with this phrase that we still use today to explain how God is divine and he is man at the same, Jesus was divine and, and, and man at the same time. We say this, we say Jesus is fully God and fully man. And that's what they mainly debated and that's what they came up with and we still hold true to that today. So, now if you guys are really into studying this and want to know more about the reliability of the scriptures, uh, you really need to check out some authors. Uh, there's one guy named F.F. F. Bruce. He's a leading scholar. He has several books. Uh, one, the Canon of Scripture. Another book, the, the New Testament documents. And the last one, uh, the Books and the Parchments. And if you read him, he's a, he's a conservative, well-known scholar, uh, very educated man, much more so than I. I encourage you to read those if you want to know more. But for those of you who just want to remember some quick facts for when you get into a conversation with somebody who says, well, how can you trust the Bible. I mean, all the copies and blah, 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 blah. You know, if you just want to know some quick facts, um, I want to encourage you to check out a little reference, reference pamphlet that my wife and I put together for students a while back. Um, but it's also good for us adults. I still use it. I pull it out. Uh, it has a lot of, uh, well, has a bit of quick reference on the reliability of the scriptures and how the Bible was formed. And uh, it's called Facts Behind Your Faith. We have it over here at the information booth. But if, if you're interested in that kind of thing, again, if you want to enter into this conversation that's been started by this movie and by this book. And again, again, we're not protesting this movie or the book. We're not uh, going to boycott anything. Um, I really don't think um, we're going to make that much of a difference in boycotting anyway. But really, um, what I want to encourage you to do is if you want to talk about it with your friends, I encourage you to read the book or see the movie so you can talk about it intelligently, that you know what it's about, okay? So you know what the arguments are. And I, I really do think, again, it's, it's our generation that's saying we need to ask these questions again. These questions have been asked before in the past and they've been answered by the church. And it's just time for the church to answer these questions again. What I want you to know, why I've shared all this with you guys, is that I want you to know that the, that the scriptures that are in our Bibles today, that you can trust them is the same teachings that the first Christians devoted themselves to. It's what the apostles testified as being scripture, as being gospel, the good news, the truth. You know, my mind and, and the way it works and the way I was trained when I went to school, I, I don't have a problem with the whole transmission of the copies or the historicity or the internal consistency. I don't have a problem with any of that because I, I know that there are scholars who have been looking over this for years. You know the biggest step for me in my mind is the first one, is that what we have today was inspired by God and it was revealed by God to man. 
That's the biggest step for me. It was God breathed and the man wrote it down. Yet, when I read this book, when I read the Bible, there is something that happens unlike when I read the Koran or read the writings of Confucius or Buddha. There is something that happens inside of me when I read God's Word, the Bible. And I know, I know when I read it, I know that it is alive and I know that it's powerful. You know, it stirs things up in me. It stirs things up. If you struggle with the idea of God's Word, the Bible, being divinely inspired, I challenge you. I challenge you to open it up and read it for yourself. I know lots of us, we, we went to church and we heard the stories. We heard the, the children's versions. And, but many of us have never read the stories for ourselves. And we've never read what's in there. And I tell, I'm telling you, if you read it, something's going to happen. I pray something will happen when you read it. Because it is alive. It is a powerful. And as, as, as the early Romans said, and they, in, in Latin they said it's vox Deo. It is the voice of God. When you read this, it's like God speaking to you. It really is. So I challenge you, open it up, read it. Next week, we're going to have uh, some, some helps on that for reading God's Word. We're going to be talking more about the benefits of God's Word, and why it's such a good thing, and why you should give your attention to the greatest book in the world. So uh, today, um, we're finished talking about this and talking about the reliability. Would you just stand with me right now? I just want to close in prayer. I want to say thank you for patiently listening. Uh, I know a lot of this is a lot of facts, a lot of information that I know sometimes uh, some of us, is, it, it doesn't really concern us. But for other, others of us who are getting into conversations with folks, it's real important. So uh, thank you for being patient. And uh, I hope to see you next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to say thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to the original men that wrote it down. Thank you for those who copied it so carefully and preserved it so that we might be able to read it. Thank you for the men who even gave their lives to translate it into a language that we could understand and that we could actually read it for ourselves and have that wonderful experience of, of the words just jumping off the page and slapping us. And Lord, thank you that your word, that when we apply it and live it, Lord, that it does something. There's changes that happen that don't, that don't happen when we read other books. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your direction and your guidance. We love you. I pray you bless these people as they go today. And uh, bless the moms that are out here today. In Jesus' name, amen.